This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 6, Episode 19 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. Today is Part 3 in our series on Michael Piller, where we're looking at his television pilots primarily. And today we will be discussing his fourth television show, The Dead Zone. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today we are joined by a very special guest, uh, the associate producer of The Dead Zone, Eric Stillwell. How's it going, Eric? Great. Great to be here. Thank you very much for... Yeah, for... thank you for joining us. Yeah. You're um, I mean, for those people who don't... I'm assuming most people who listen to this show know who you are. But for those people who don't know, you're not just the associate producer of The Dead Zone. You're also a Star Trek veteran. Um, True. Having worked on both Next Gen and Voyager, and probably some other stuff too, I imagine. Mostly Next Generation, and I, when uh, Michael was the creative consultant on Voyager, I worked for him, so I was a, a production associate because I was yeah. working for Michael, and I had a, a little bit to do with Deep Space Nine, but mostly Next Generation. And in, in addition to, to that stuff, you also are the co-writer of two episodes of Star Trek, including yesterday's Enterprise. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God. Wow. That, yeah. The... Co-story writer. Story. Well, still. <laughs> hey. Still. I mean, you know, to don't, don't yeah. sell yourself short here. Right. I mean, to all. have anything to do with the creation of, I'm going to say... One of the finest hours in television history. Okay, yes. and I don't think I'm exaggerating. No, that is not an that is not an <laughs> well, overstatement in the least. I mean, Thank that's you. that's pretty impressive. Thank you. So, yeah. so yeah, and we can so, sort of give that credit to Michael Miller for buying the idea. So, uh, well, you know, but it, I mean, we were talking about that a couple of weeks ago with Larry, and it seems like he had a very um, uh, astute eye for talent. You know, and the fact that like half of of uh, the people writing te- television shows today were sort of discovered by him. That's true. It's amazing. That's yeah. true. So, okay, well, today we're talking about Dead Zone. I mean, if we don't, if if you're not completely sick of us by the end of the day, we would love to have you back uh, soon to talk about what you've done on Star Trek. Sure. But uh, today we're, we're, we're talking about uh, the Dead Zone and, and Michael Piller. Um, so... Uh, I guess before we start that, can, can you tell us, you know, what what Michael had done sort of in between like Voyager and Legend and and the Dead Zone? I, I know that that he had uh, well, Larry had talked about how he had written a few movie scripts. Uh, he kept on mentioning like a spy movie. Well, <laughs> there was one particular script that Michael was very uh, proud of. It was called Oversight. It, it, it wasn't so much a spy movie as it was a, like a government conspiracy kind of thing that involved the highest levels of the U.S. government and um, secret military caches that were being sold to terrorists and stuff. And it, it was, a, I thought, a very, it was an excellent script, but Michael was constantly rewriting it and finessing it. At one point in time, Sidney Pollock's company optioned it, and they they thought it was actually going to get made. But, you know, things like this happen all the time in Hollywood where thousands of projects get optioned and then nothing comes of it. But in the meanwhile, Michael was also working on um, other pilot ideas for television. Basically, after we left Paramount, in 1999, Michael started his own production company called Pillar Squared, and he, he basically went into business with his son, Sean Pillar, so that's why they called it Pillar Squared, uh, even though mathematically that doesn't make any sense, but <laughs> 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 that, that was the idea that they uh, came up with, and Michael bought his own building in Hollywood, and, and it used to be an old glass blowing factory uh, in, on the Santa Monica Boulevard near La Brea and he completely renovated the building and turned it into like a writer's suite which was perfect for a, a group of writers to come in and it had common spaces where 
people could be created. There was like this huge old fashioned wood bar with mirrors up the wall and fireplaces and pool tables. And it was just really a great creative environment in the middle of uh, Hollywood. So uh, that's where we left Paramount and sort of became independent from the studio in 1999. And John joined the team and Michael and John worked on another feature script that was sort of like a back to the future kind of story that uh, was about a teenager. I, I can't even remember all the details of it, but it was kind of more of a quirky comedy kind of futuristic thing where um, it was taking place in the near future and sort of had elements that reminded me of Back to the Future where they were talking about different uh, people like President John Kennedy Jr. And so it was always, this yeah. was one of the weird things that would happen with Michael. He would be writing scripts like the oversight feature and he would pick a location for like a domestic terrorist thing that would happen in Idaho or something. And then like next week in the news, there would actually be <laughs> this <laughs> event that would happen in Idaho. So he would switch it to Texas. And then like a month or two later, like something would happen in Texas. <laughs> and he kept moving the location <laughs> of these events all around. And then like right after he uh, wrote in this, uh, this other script that John Kennedy Jr. was president was like right before he died in a plane crash. I said, Michael, stop putting real people <laughs> in your scripts. It kind of reminded me of another movie plot that came out a few years ago where the, everything the guy wrote came true. I oh, yes. I remember that. And I was like, that's Michael's story right there. <laughs> so, so there were several different projects Michael was working on, including a science fiction pilot called Day One that was uh, based on a British sci-fi series called... Um, the last train. I think they only did like 13 episodes over in, in the UK, but um, that didn't get picked up. And I'm sure there was dozens of other things going on, but eventually uh, the dead zone came along, so that became the focus. Well, I mean, the, the day one sounds interesting. Um, now, I mean, the the, the last train. I, I haven't I haven't seen that show, but like. How did that come about? Was it something where he had seen the show and, and wanted to adapt it, or did someone come to him you with know, that idea? I honestly can't remember how it came to him, um, but it's and it's possible it was his other business partner, Lloyd Segan, who joined the company um, eventually because Lloyd was the, was the producer who brought the Dead Zone to Michael. Um, because he had the rights to it and that's how the dead zone got started so eventually the company was named pillar segan and somebody else joined the company after i left a few years later but um, after michael passed away sean and lloyd stayed business partners and added another person to, to the team what what exactly was the the premise of day one? I mean, you you were describing it to us a little bit earlier, but it, it sounds pretty interesting. Well, the the basic premise was that there's a, a group of people who are on a train on the east coast on a commuter train going from like New York to Boston or something, and at one point they're in an underground tunnel when um, a cataclysmic world event occurs, and I can't remember if it was a meteor or whatever basically wipes out the whole planet and they are they're like some of the only survivors left i mean there's obviously other survivors but this group of people on the train end up having to like team up to survive this event and uh it, it had i thought it had some interesting potential but it didn't get picked up so was that one that he was writing on his own? Because it seems like, I think like with all of his pilots, he had like a, a, a creator, a creative partner or something. Well, he and Sean worked on everything together, basically. But Michael was the key writer. Um, but Sean was always involved in the, the story breaks and um, giving it sort of a more useful perspective. Because... Michael was very concerned at that point in his career that the studios were only doing business with like young 
young writers and young producers. So they, he felt like, you know, he would go into the studio to pitch and all the executives are like 14. <laughs> <laughs> so he felt at that point in time that bringing Sean in as a partner helped bring some youthfulness to, to the, to the team. And I thought they were pretty successful. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, okay, well, g- getting on to the dead zone, I mean, I guess uh, for those people who aren't familiar with the premise, uh, I don't know, uh, John, John or Eric, e- e- either of you, do you want to sort of give give a sort of synopsis of the premise for, for that? Well, it's, it's based on the Stephen King novel, The Dead Zone, which was a movie that had been made years ago with um, Christopher Walken that uh, is basically about a man who after a, a car accident wakes up with like um, extra sensory perception basically because of a tumor on his brain and but he has visions of the future and he can see things before they, before it happens and so it, it was a great premise for a series and Michael was able to adapt the original novel into a television pilot that would basically take the the plot of the movie and like stretch it out over like five years and add a a lot of you know independent elements that weren't in the original novel because basically the the pilot episode uh draws a a lot of the elements from the original Stephen King novel yeah there's sort of a with with the show there's sort of a vibe um similar to what they did with Hannibal recently where it's based on Red Dragon, but they kind of they take their time getting there uh, right. over the three seasons to you know, but they still have those elements that are inspired by uh, the original book and uh, and movie that really sort of power it through, like the the nods to the fans that that are so important to uh, keep them vested in everything. Right, because in the orig- in the original Dead Zone novel and the movie. It's, a, it's all about Johnny, who's played by Anthony Michael Hall in the series, having visions of the end of the world and a specific political person who becomes president who ends up causing like a nuclear war. And so there's always these visions of Washington, D.C. Sorry, John, being <laughs> evaporated. <laughs> oh, you know? no, we, we know we're on the front lines. <laughs> we know it's coming. So it was like these visions of nuclear holocaust and, and Johnny's quest to uh, basically stop this from happening, and and so then it, and so then it's a, on sort of a X file type format where you know every once in a while this end of the world story would be like the focus of a couple episodes, but then when you go back to your mundane average. Oh, this week, some guy who thinks he's Santa Claus is robbing stores. <laughs> you know that kind of story would come along, and 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 then you know a few weeks later, you might touch base again with the end of the world scenario, and it would just sort of string it all together over time. I you know I I haven't read the book, but I I watched the movie. I just watched it yesterday, as a matter of fact, and. You know, in watching the movie, I felt like this is really episodic. You know, like basically, the the plot of the first, you know, like two part or the first two episodes, is kind of the first half of the movie, and it really is sort of a mm-hmm. thing where um, that story is like a complete story. Like as I was watching the movie, I'm like, well, this could be the end of an episode, and you know, the 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 second half could be part two, and I. I, I like the idea of you know, and in kind of reading about the book, it sounds like the the pilot and everything were a lot truer to the book than than the movie was in the little details, but also just sort of that idea of like there being kind of like parallel stories between you know Johnny and the the politician, you know, and it right. not and not being just like this guy who comes in you know, an hour into the movie and, and then does something bad and then he needs to stop him, you know, that kind of thing. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really cool. I mean, I can, I can definitely see how that would lend itself well to a television show. Yeah, yeah I think they, they were really able to draw a lot of inspiration from the original novel, even for other stories that came after the pilot. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. 
That's cool. It, yeah. it seems to be a thing. I mean, with like a lot of movie adaptations or like television adaptations of movies, it, it almost feels like the first episode is just the movie. And then, you know, further episodes are just, you know, further adventures. But I like the idea. And I think that, like John was saying, we're kind of trending towards that. Like the From Dusk Till Dawn seems to be doing that too. Yeah. Uh, where it's like, no, let's take this two-hour thing and really examine everything that's in that over the course of a season or five seasons or whatever. So that's really mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, I, 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 I like that. Was... Mike, you were saying that that uh, his his business partner brought him the project. Was it something that um, a studio or a network was looking to do, or um, was it just something where they were like, "Hey, there's an opportunity here, and we're going to be able to sort of pitch this elsewhere"? It's hard for me to recollect a lot of details on things where I wasn't actually present. Yeah, yeah. Like, so I don't even remember how Michael and Lloyd actually met. Yeah, but. I see. Like I don't know if Lloyd was looking for a writer because some network was interested in the project, or if it was just something that he and Michael came together on. I don't remember all those details, but um, we we did we had a relationship with Lionsgate Television, so it was sort of like they had a first look deal going on. I don't know if it was formalized in any way, but whenever there was a project. Lionsgate had the first go at it. And so they were the ones who picked up the project. Uh, and then, of course, it, that, it was shown on USA Network. So I don't know how all those business arrangements came together. I just know that Lloyd Segan had the project. And, and but he, he's like a producer, like a day-to-day, like on-the-set type of producer guy, not so much a writer. So he it was a perfect partnership for him to hook up with Michael and Sean and have like the creative team join as the producer. And Michael was more of a, um, Michael is a definitely a creative type who loves to like lock himself in a room and just focus on writing. So he's not so much like hands on with the day to day stuff that's going on on the set. So Lloyd was like the perfect partner for him because Lloyd could do all of that. And Michael could focus on the, the creative side of it and spend time with the writers and the writers were in breaking stories. And I mean, he was definitely involved in all the executive decisions on the show because he was one of the executive producers, but he was definitely more on the creative side of it. And not the day-to-day technical, you know, budget issues and all that kind of stuff. It it sounds very similar uh, to uh, his relationship with with Rick Berman. On, yeah, exactly. On yeah. Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Because um, Michael's was always the kind of guy too who would tell his writing staff, you know, don't don't write as your first draft thinking about the budget. Just write what you think would be like the best, coolest episode. And then we'll deal with the budget issues later, which always comes when you have a production meeting and, and all the other producers are like, we can't afford this and we can't do that. So that's when all the edits and cuts and things would start happening. But but from the beginning, Michael would tell people, do not think about the budget. Yeah. So that's unlike most producers who are always yeah. worried about the budget. So. Uh, it probably leads to that. Is probably why his, his his the writing on his show is so good, right? Because I mean, yeah. if you have someone who's not constantly worried about it, uh, it, it seems like it would allow for more creative freedom. That's well, that's true. That's cool. So, so what was your role on the show? Well, I started off as uh, the script coordinator, but when Michael and I left Paramount together, I basically sort of was his Joe Friday right hand man guy because when we when michael bought the building where he eventually set up his production company i basically was in charge of all the operations all the the physical issues with the building the phone lines the computer the internet parking you know making sure the toilets were working everything like that (laughs) and at the same time um it's like his executive assistant setting up meetings 
meetings, arranging, you know, meetings with studios and producers. All sorts of people came through our offices all the time when Michael was in development, like Gail Berman, who used to run Fox Television. And, you know, there was like people coming and meeting with Michael all the time. So we, we were, I basically coordinated like everything to do with Michael's production company. And then eventually, um, there, it's kind of a funny story, but while we were doing the Dead Zone, um, Voyager premiered. And, and was it Voyager? No. Yeah, because we, we had been working on Deep Space Nine and then Voyager came. And um, Michael asked me what I liked best about the pilot episode. And I said, what I liked best about the pilot episode was that Dave Rossi had an associate producer credit <laughs> on there. <laughs> and Dave Rossi was someone that I friended at a Star Trek convention and helped him get a job as a tour guide at Paramount, who eventually became a PA and ended up working for Rick Berman. And Michael just like looked at me like with a totally deadpan face and said, well, how many Star Trek? Oh, it was Enterprise. It was Enterprise, not Voyager. Yeah. yeah. It was an Enterprise where Dave had an associate producer credit. And it was the first Star Trek that Michael wasn't involved with. Um, so, other than the original. So, Michael says to me, well, how many Star Treks has Dave Rossi worked on? And I said, well, Next Generation, usually signed Voyager, and now Enterprise. And Michael says with a straight face, well, when Dead Zone has its third spinoff, you could be in a <laughs> But then, like, about a month later, I got a, a promotion. I became an associate producer, along with this wonderful woman, Amber Woodward, up in uh, Vancouver, Washington. Because Dead Zone was this interesting uh, bi-country production where the writing staff and Michael were all down in Hollywood, and the production was in Vancouver. And it was the beginning of the whole internet um, age of emailing scripts back and forth, and the producers, Sean and Michael, flying back and forth up to Vancouver all the time to be on set and on location. Michael rarely actually went up there, but spent most of his time in Hollywood. That that type of production has become, you know, very common in recent years. You know, especially with a, a lot of you know uh, production productions, you know, going up to Vancouver, and I mean. It seems like it would be a lot different for for like a, a head writer uh, than than you know working next door. Like I mean, I'm, I'm guessing on Star Trek, he was pretty much like right across the lot, right? Well, it's true, but Michael didn't go to the sets even on yeah. Star Trek that often. I mean, he obviously did go down there, but Michael um, Michael even when he was writing about himself would say that he wasn't a particularly sociable person in like in like large groups he like hated going to parties he's like at a party he's like the guy sitting in the corner talking to the ficus and he actually said <laughs> that about himself um so michael didn't really like going down and hanging out on the sets and being in large groups so but he really like was so um disciplined and dedicated to his writing that every single day he would come in at the crack of dawn and lock himself in his office till 12 o'clock noon and not want to be disturbed while he was just focusing on getting scripts written. So that was his, his forte. So it wasn't really a big uh, challenge or a big uh, leap for him to... Yeah, not, not so much for him. and But for me, I hated it because I... I, my office at Pillar Squared was a, was a, it was a nice office, but it didn't have a window. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I felt like I was trapped inside of a computer, basically, like all day long, like communicating with people, you know, 3,000 miles away and, or talking to people on the phones, and, but never actually being there. I got to go a couple times up to Vancouver, but not on a regular basis. Whereas on Star Trek, you know, I used to go to the sets pretty frequently and it was fun, you know, it it changes the dynamic too, because um, as a, as a member of the production crew um, on Star Trek, I knew the cast members and knew the people who worked in the different departments, wardrobe, but on Dead Zone, it's sort of like, unless you were communicating directly 
with your counterpart in Vancouver, most of the other people on the show didn't know me. So if I showed up on the set, they're all like, who's that? You know? <laughs> so that part of it, I didn't really love so much. Plus, I know this isn't about me, but I was um, at, at the president of the clerical union when we were at Paramount. So I, held, I hated the whole notion of runaway production and all these shows going out of the country. And I always just wanted Michael to be one of those producers who would use his clout and say, no, we're going to do a show in America, in, in Hollywood, you know. But of course, then the next show that we did, Wildfire, was shot in the United States, but it was in Arizona, so it might as well have been in Vancouver because it was the same situation again where the writing staff was in L.A., but everybody else was somewhere else. What what about, like, the, the post-production? Was that done back in L.A., too, or, or was that done up in Vancouver? I think there were combinations. I think most of the post was done in L.A., but there may have been some elements of it I was just I mean, you know, you hear people, you know, talk about, you know, writers, you know, showrunners in particular talk about how important the editing process is. And I was wondering how, how much. I'm pretty sure that most of the editing was done somewhere in LA, but it wasn't close to our offices. But I remember, you know, Michael would go over and screen cuts of episodes and stuff like that. Is that something, I mean, you said that he wasn't really, you know, hands-on in terms of the production, but, you know, like you hear, I'm just thinking of like, let's say you hear when Ron Moore talks about BSG and stuff and how he would sit in the editing room for hours just redoing episodes or whatever. Was that something that Michael did in general or did he pretty much leave that to other people? Well, I think Michael did that to an extent. I mean, he did more hands-on stuff with Dead Zone and Wildfire than, than with Star Trek, because on Star Trek, that was sort of Rick Berman's domain. Yeah. And on these other shows, Michael was the head for, head executive producer on the show. So, But I think Sean actually spent a lot more time in post and was involved with the, the music selections and the, a lot of the editing choices he and Lloyd that seems to make sense because Sean later became a director, right? Right. He started okay. directing episodes. Yeah. Well, that's cool. It seems like there were a lot of Star Trek people who, who Michael brought over with him who worked on, on the show. I mean, of course, I mean, Nicole DeBoer, you know, st- uh-huh. sticks out. Even though, I mean, was he, he wasn't really actively involved with DS9 at that point, was he? I mean, was that just like a coincidence or... Did he say, like, oh, yeah, no, she's good? You know, I don't know how much influence there was, except I think Michael was savvy enough to know that he was so familiar with the the Star Trek world that he knew that if there were elements from Star Trek that it would help draw an audience. Yeah. And I'm not sure if he was thinking, oh, Nicole DeBoer is going to draw millions of viewers to our show, but it was still a connection. And uh, and this reminds me, when the show was launching, Michael took the initiative um, even beyond what the, the studio and the network had proposed doing to promote the launch of the show, Michael said, I want to go around the country to Star Trek conventions Mm -hmm. and take Michael Hall with us and go and like promote the show. And he had to go basically sell this idea to the studio and they agreed to it. And I sort of like coordinated the whole thing and I was like well you need to go to Denver and do the Starland convention and you need to traditional do one in New York or wherever and we should do all these big conventions including the one in Pasadena that creation used to do every year and so we ended up getting a, a, a promotional budget and had like a whole booth with that was completely white with the dead zone logo and all the you know stuff that you could hand out like little mini posters and stuff and i i think that was a fan like an amazing thing that a lot of producers would never 
take on their own to go out and, and self-promote. And, I mean, they do, but it's usually more of an orchestrated production that the studios arrange. And this one was actually Michael's idea. He wanted to do that. He may have yeah. pioneered the whole idea for all I know. Uh, in terms of the promotion, though, uh, with USA being a, a cable network, mm -hmm. is there was there a, a different set of pressures, or was it similar to trying to get promotion for just a syndicated show out there? Because especially in that time period when it came out, I remember Dead Zone making a splash because it was it was USA Network, it was you know characters welcome, and it was. Mm -hmm this is your alternative. It, it wasn't as, uh, uh, expected or, uh, you know, like with your AMC now or, or anything like that. Like, was there a different set of pressures that went with the promotion? Was there a different set of expectations than on a typical show? Well, I'm trying to put it all into my mind, the timeline, but I think we were sort of at the beginning of cable becoming huge to the point where it was the beginning of more people watching cable than watching like network right. shows. And, but, but the, that also comes with smaller budgets for everything because we didn't have a network size budget for things. And Michael would literally take the, the lead in trying to convince the studio and the network to like pony up the extra <laughs> money to let <laughs> us go like sell the show. And I think, it succeeded with, with the dead zone, with him getting out there personally doing that. And it was so great too, because Michael Hall had never experienced anything like a Star Trek convention. <laughs> He'd just be like wandering around in the crowds with the people, you know, which most of the actors don't do because they know better. <laughs> but Michael Hall was just like, here I am. <laughs> You know, mingling with the crowds, and so I think that helped. It brought a whole like personal sort of touch to before the show even was launched, that people sure. knew about it. Sure, that that's certainly something which I mean, it seems like everyone else has picked up on now. Like I mean, I was just at the convention in Vegas, and there was. Patrick Stewart there, and his oh, I yeah. think main main reason for being there was to promote Blunt Talk. You of know, course, yeah, yeah. yeah I, and I remember I was at another one with Brandon Braga where he brought clips from like Terra Nova and, and Cosmos, you know, and everything. I mean, it, it it seems like that's the thing to do these days, and it makes perfect sense, you know. And they all learned it from Michael. <laughs> <laughs> As but again, true, like I don't know if Patrick went there on his because it was his idea or because the studio said, hey, here's an opportunity. Right, right. Yeah. So. No, yeah, that, that makes sense. It's a great idea. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, you know, Larry was saying, like, with Legend, how the network sort of, like, completely missed the opportunity with John Delancey and the, the marketing and everything and, you know, didn't didn't exploit that to its fullest potential. And for for Michael to, you know, see you know, with dead zones, like, Hey, no, this is still a good idea. You know, bring in Nicole DeBoer and, and everything. Yeah. And I think Michael, I remember when legend was on and that was during a time where I had left the studio and was actually out running Star Trek conventions. Mm -hmm. And I remember Michael calling me one day when legend was kind of struggling and they were afraid it would be canceled. And Michael was reaching out, like, how could he like, asking me like how could he like connect with the star trek fans out in the world and but, you know it's hard to imagine now but back like when we were doing insurrection in 1998 the internet was sort of new yeah. and like yeah. people did it wasn't like today where you could look on facebook and see 5,000 stories in your news feed every day because <laughs> facebook didn't even exist but like michael uh, used when we were doing insurrection there was this uh, Star Trek web site called Trek Web that was run by oh, yeah. this kid down in Florida named Steve yeah. Tetzler. And Michael looked at that website every single day to see like what the rumors were and what was going on. And then Michael actually started communicating with them to like sort of leak out little tidbits to see how the reaction would 
be to certain ideas and stuff. And eventually, Steve Kretzler actually came out to Paramount, and Michael arranged a studio tour for him. And it's so weird. My wife and I even ended up hosting Steve at our house while he was visiting from Florida because he was still a minor and he had to get permission from his parents to come out. And, wow. and Michael invited him to, to the world premiere of Insurrection, which was held in Las Vegas. And he got to go in the limo with the family to the, to the screening. So Michael always was interested in, in trying to reach out to the fans, whether it was behind the scenes or sort of secretly doing it or actually literally like showing up and doing talks and meeting people in person to do that, which probably wasn't that easy for him because he admitted that he wasn't a big fan of being in large crowds of people, but it was cool to have him showing up at the conventions and talking to the fans. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I, yeah. I, I, I wish I would have been able to see him at a convention. And, and I got to go with them on a, a couple of these trips, so that was kind of cool for me, too. Yeah, I can imagine. That's, that's, yeah. that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, there, there were some other Star Trek people, though, like on, on the writing staff and, and everything, too. I mean, the two that stand out are, are Michael Taylor and Joe Minoski. Um, mm-hmm. uh, how, how did they get involved? Well... Michael Taylor and Michael Pillar really didn't even know each other though. Well, oh, because yeah, I guess because he he left Voyager by that point, right? Well, and and when Michael left Voyager, uh, Paramount moved us into a separate building where we weren't even in the same building with the Star Trek writers anymore. <laughs> so when Michael Taylor came on board and basically worked for Jerry Taylor and Brandon, I guess. Um, Mike Michael didn't have that much personal interaction with him, but he obviously knew his credentials. Sure, they brought him over, um, and Michael Taylor was great to work with. His office was right next to mine. Um, trying to think of uh, Joe Minoski is the other. Oh, one. Joe! Michael Michael loved Joe's work on Next Generation, and literally begged him to come and work on the <laughs> And at first, Joe didn't want to do it. In fact, Joe sort of was like a recluse. Like, he, when he left Star Trek, he, like, went to France or something and disappeared <laughs> for, like, a whole bunch of years. And you, you don't really hear much about Joe. But Michael pegged him to come and work on the show, which he did for a while. But he, he, he wasn't he really didn't want to be in that structured like environment so much that so he didn't stay that long. That I mean, more than I think probably any other Star Trek writer, like he is like, he fascinates me like so much because he seems like, like his ideas and everything are so like crazy out there. And you'd think that he'd be making like these weird experimental crazy movies. And then you, you stick that in the world of like Star Trek or dead zone. And it's like, how does that work? And yet it's, it's awesome. But I, th- but I think Michael mm. wanted to tap that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Joe Manaski was the one who started that whole 47. Yeah. Thing, <laughs> where now it's in every movie. Oh that yeah. You see like, every movie you go to, there's a 47 <laughs> in it now because Joe started that on next generation. <laughs> You guys know that, right? Uh, yeah, I've, I've I've heard. Yeah, that for yeah. sure. Like, because Joe started putting the number forty-seven into every episode that he wrote, and then all the other writers started doing it, and then it like spread over to like all the J.J. Abrams productions, mm-hmm. Alias. You know, every show would be like some forty-seven thing going on. Yeah, I mean, it, and they even it's still even happening in the new Star Trek movies. Oh yeah, for like, sure. Like the enterprise being built at sector 47 <laughs> yeah and now it's like i swear it's even in all the marvel movies and yeah. i work at disney now uh-huh so marvel is one of our franchises so even for me when i go see a marvel movie and 
the 47th because I'm like, there's Joe Manowski. <laughs> yeah, well, the fans are definitely aware of it too. You know, I mean, we yeah. there was just a discussion on our message boards the other day about like the most obscure 47 references in Star yeah. Trek. Oh, know? uh, in Relics, right? Was yeah. it, like there was some sort of like really sly 47 reference. Yeah, like, they you were had saying, to subtract a number to get 47 or yeah, something. Like, yeah, like Scotty's yeah. Uh, friend had like yes. 53% signal degradation, yeah. you know, so yes. 47% was still there. Yeah, or it would yeah. just be a visual thing that the art department would start slipping in yeah. backgrounds on doors and computer panels and stuff. It's Okay, it, looking just looking at the the credits, it, it looks like um, after about a year, like Michael seemed to be like the the showrunner, you know, hardcore for like the first season, and then in the second season, he was still he had still written a, a number of episodes, but didn't seem to be quite as involved. And then by season three, like he he hadn't written any more episodes. Um, was that because he was? I mean, he, I know that he did the same thing on on Deep Space Nine and and Voyager, where he kind of left in order to develop something else. Was that what he was doing here? Was he sort of? He's like, okay, I've got this off the ground. Now I'm going to work on Wildfire, or or something. Well, else. I'm sure at some point in time because I don't remember the specific. Oh uh, yeah, timelines. But, yeah. but obviously, when Wildfire came along, Michael wanted to focus. On launching this new show with another Star Trek actor, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, so that would be the primary reason. But now that I'm thinking back of it, I remember several different showrunners coming and going. But I, generally speaking, um, it's like because you you hear well again like Ron Moore, for example, with Battlestar Galactica, or. Um, hearing like Iris Stephen Bear talk about Deep Space Nine and how his like agents were like counseling him to leave and develop something else, and he's like, "No, I got to stay here and see this, you know, to the finish." Mm-hmm. It it seems like Michael didn't really have that that desire so much. He was more interested in the creation aspect. Would you say that that's a- accurate? Yeah, I mean, Michael definitely had a different mindset than most. I would say he went against the grain about what you should or shouldn't do. Cause he used to always make a, a joke uh, that his agent would, would always be telling him that he should leave and like do his own stuff. And, and then Michael would always end with the joke that, but now that he's enjoying his multi-million dollar home in the Pacific Palisades, he's glad I stayed. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, because a lot of times if I would like say to Michael, you know, any kind of thing like the studio wants this or that, and Michael would be like, I don't care what the studio wants. I, this is my show, you know? So Michael had to learn to like be politic with the right people but he did it in a way where he always got his own his own way because he he would fight tooth and nail for something creatively that he felt strongly about and wouldn't just roll over because somebody was like we should do this different and and because michael felt strongly that, that he had reasons why he needed certain elements to happen and whether or not the audience would relate to those things and so he would fight for them up to a point because at some point you know you can't fight everything yeah yeah that's really cool um i mean before we go is there there anything else that we're missing or anything else that you wanted to get out there about (laughs) well i think one of the things is that michael pillar was what you saw is what you got he was completely genuine person he wasn't like a hollywood bullshitter kind of person even when we worked at uh, star trek you know there was i think a lot of politics with you know rick berman and stuff and michael was sort of like oblivious to that kind of thing because that just did not interest him at all he, he wasn't going to play the studio game or the network game it's like he was just there for the creative part of it and and it had to be the best that he could possibly make it and it wasn't about 
trading this for that to make somebody else happy or it was just all about the product the final product and you know giving the audience something that was genuine so i think that was one of the coolest things about michael and it's like you know as you mentioned earlier you can watch um television now and almost every other show you'll see the name of a writer who's either a showrunner or top producer on a show that started off working for Michael on Star Trek because Michael cultivated that. He went out literally searching for the best young talent that he could bring in because someone had given him an opportunity, a break in his career when he was younger. And he always felt that that was important for him to give back. And he even created like a, made a half million dollar donation to his alma mater in North Carolina to set up a, a writing, you know, department as part of their cinema studies program and donated like all of his scripts to their library because he just was always trying to encourage young new writers coming up. And on Next Generation, he convinced a studio to allow an open submission policy, which is unheard of mm-hmm. yeah, in, yeah. in the industry. And that's how we got people like Ron Moore, who is now like one of the top creative producers in Hollywood. Yeah. Because Michael opened the door for people like that who who might not have ever had a chance to, you know, break the door down because everywhere else you have to have an agent or a a lawyer just even get your script considered you know and at star trek we were getting like five thousand like freelance submissions every year because of michael so it's certainly a legacy that he has left for the entire industry absolutely i mean it's it's kind of insane i mean you look at you look at the shows that he created and you know i mean so, i mean like deep space 9 you know one of the best shows ever made but then you just look at like everything else that he did you know that he, he's there isn't even any like credit for necessarily and it's just like wow you know i mean his his legacy is is insane you know well and, and earlier you mentioned that um, not it seems like michael would be stepping away from the creative process but he was always involved even if he wasn't getting credit because mm-hmm. he he on uh, next generation and dead zone would work on every single script you know it wasn't like even though he wasn't getting the writing credit on it like yesterday's enterprise michael was one of the key writers on that episode but he couldn't have credit on it because the writers guild said there's a limit to how many names we can yeah. put on the script. So, so Michael's like, well, the rest of the team can have their names on it, but I just won't have my name on it. Yeah. But he was still there. Still yeah. Doing it. I, you know, bringing it all together. And I mean, that's, that's, that's amazing, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you very much for, for talking to us today. You know, I mean, we, we really appreciate yeah. it. it. It is great very to, much. you know, get, get a look at, you know, I mean, we can, sit here and talk about you know how great his shows are all day long but then to actually get sort of a glimpse at as to who he was and how he operated and all that stuff it's it's really uh enlightening and inspiring so thank you very much for joining us we really appreciate it thank you it was my pleasure thank you well that was that was really great talking to eric today you know yeah it was it was uh, really enjoyable and you know that if there's a common thread um it's that uh, Michael Piller, he not only had an impact, uh, you know, in a professional sense, but he very obviously touched the lives of the people around him. And to hear Eric speak with so much affection and respect for him, I think really is is something else. It, it's kind of weird, you know, like uh, I, at the time of recording this, our first episode has dropped, the one with Larry. And um, just looking at like the responses on Twitter and Facebook and everything, like most people, <laughs> like they're 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 leaving. I, I wouldn't call it feedback, but comments before even listening to the episode. And basically, what mm-hmm. everyone is saying from like all sorts of different walks of life are like, you know, Michael Pillar is amazing. You know, whether it's yeah. people who uh, you know love his his work 
or fans who met him at conventions or, you know, like people who worked with him on, you know, the various shows or whatever. They're all, I mean, they're all saying the exact same things. And, you know, basically it just sounds like he was like the most amazing guy, you know? Yeah. 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 I wish I could have met him. Yeah, I, me too. I really do. Yeah, me too, for sure. Um, and he was also a hell of a writer. That's that's for certain, you know. That that's demonstrably true. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it was fun talking to Eric today about uh, the Dead Zone and, and Michael Pillar's work on the Dead Zone. Um, but that's not all we're talking about today on Trek FM. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Is there that awkward part like near the end where he's like walking back to his shuttle like, so will this take me back or? (laughs) (laughs) You said it wasn't very fast. Can I go fast enough to slingshot around the sun? Can we slingshot the Dyson Sphere? Because that's basically a sun. Earl Grey. Really, she's following the Hasbrat, I think, is really what it is. (laughs) Come for the revolution, stay for the Hasbrat. It's got to be fresh Hasbrat. None of that replicates. Like, Daniel's, like, watching the end of this episode, like, tears are coming down the face. It's like, no, it's the Hasbrat. It's so spicy. It's what it is. (laughs) The Orb. Well, apparently, and did you find this interesting, Matthew? Apparently... The Navark reports directly to the prophets. Which is awkward because they don't always show up for meetings, so... Right. Yeah. Plus, you never know what time the meeting is really going to be, right? That is true. It could have been yesterday, and you might have missed it. The Ready Room. Do you think this episode would have been so popular and remain a fan favorite if the Enterprise had been overrun with zebra mussels? (laughs) (laughs) To the journey! The crew attempts to rescue three aliens in stasis from a bizarre program based on fear. Like all fear, you eventually vanish. Warp 5. It kind of like is akin to um, when fans saw the Galaxy class in The Next Generation for the very first time. And you had basically a crew and civilian complement of, what, over a thousand people? About two-thirds of that complement were civilians and their families. So you actually did have teachers and scholars and scientists and their extended families on board. Commentary, Trek stars. One of the things that amazes me about the score for Star Trek The Motion Picture is that he he only had 50% of the movie available to him when he scored. So he, he was scoring an awful lot to scene missing, scene missing. The 602 Club. Where did he get the cloak from on the other planet? I really, really, really want to know. He shows up uh, with the he, cloak. He, he, he kind of fashioned it out of out of a rudimentary lathe. Uh. <laughs> Literary treks. It's a small point, but I thought it was really interesting to have here in the book because, again, that's what Star Trek Deep Space Nine has really always done for Star Trek, which is kind of make faith okay in the Star Trek universe and show how it's valid and so I thought that was a really nice uh, in it again it's a it's a tiny point in the book but I thought it was pretty powerful at least for me who is somebody who is a faith so mm-hmm. Axanar the official podcast it is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic the aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment it had its time and there's a certain amount of charm still to that but it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back in my opinion women at warp and we have her to thank for the fact that deanna troy only has two breasts yes thank you thank you dc fontana for sparing us from a three-breasted troy and that's what else is happening on trek.fm Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. 
Another way that you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Also, leave us a review on iTunes because uh, that helps us out a lot. Uh, It pushes us up in the search field so that when people type in Michael Pillar, our, our show will come up. Yeah. Something like that. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, it It's some arcane magic uh, mm-hmm. run in the background. Um, it goes into a vortex managed by red matter. And uh, the more reviews that we get, the more red matter we get, which causes Vulcan to explode and raise us in the ranks. It's a shockwave thing. Okay. So do that. If you want Vulcan to yeah. explode. And who doesn't, really? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I think... <laughs> Uh, people who are not a fan of the JJ verse don't want it to explode. That's their big thing. Okay. Well, it's eventually going to, I mean, no matter what universe or timeline you're in, eventually Vulcan is going to come to an end. Yeah. So just tear off the bandaid, get it over with. (laughs) Well, if you want Vulcan to explode, please leave us a review on iTunes. We would appreciate it. And if you don't want Vulcan to explode, there's another part of this equation because it's very complex where in order to prevent the destruction of Vulcan, you need to leave us a review on iTunes. Yes. It, it's all time paradox stuff. None of us really understand it. Yeah, yeah. Either way, leave us a review on iTunes. Or you can also contact us in various other ways. Um, you can fill out the form on uh, trek.fm slash contact. You can leave us a voicemail. If you look on the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm, uh, you, can, you can do that. You can find us as a network on Twitter at Trek FM. You can find us as a network on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. Uh, you can also find the Babel conference on Facebook where we talk about star Trek sometimes. Um, that's the Babel conference, the B A B E L. Um, that's how you spell Babel. And, uh, yes. just type that into the search field on Facebook or you can go to our website at trek.fm and click the discussion tab on the menu bar. And sometimes some, some fun conversations pop up. Like, for example, there was a conversation which started up out of nowhere about uh, a documentary called Side by Side about the difference between film and digital. And uh, oh, yeah. with Keanu Reeves hosting. Very good documentary. Yeah. Check it out. Even though they totally throw projectionists under the bus on that. They're like, they're like, um, film, there's good things and bad things. Digital, there's good things and bad things. It's all a matter of taste. This person loves film. This person loves digital. But when it comes to projection, one thing is clear. Projectionists are terrible at their jobs, and so you need to watch <laughs> movies digitally. And it's like, They said really? it in a documentary. They said it in a documentary. It's got to be true. And it's like, you've it got Christopher Nolan right there. And he's like, I like film. And then that's like it. It's like, no. What you do? <sighs> anyway, whatever. Aside from that, it's We're the Twitter documentary. generation, Mike. We, we, want, we want just the surface. We want just quick hits. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. But if you're looking for something more, check out a movie on 35 millimeter, and also go to Facebook where you can have a long discussion about you know Star Trek or Side by Side or whatever else you want. You can also find us as a show on uh, Twitter at ComTrackStars, or you can email us as a show at ComTrackStars at gmail.com if you want us to, like, directly get your 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 email without any, you know, sort of filters or or uh, or, or Facebooks or anything in, in the way. Um, where yeah. can people find you, John? Well, you can find me on Twitter at KesselJunkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Uh, you, I will also lurk around the Babel Conference from time to time, jump in from you know, on certain discussions. Uh, and uh, you can find me on another podcast called Words with Nerds that drops every Thursday through iTunes, Stitch, blah, 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 blah. And that's me and my buddy Craig talking nonsense for an hour. 
Excellent. And you can find me on Trek FM uh, doing Standard Orbit with Drew, where we talk about the original series. You can find me on uh, my my website, CommentaryTrackStars.com, where I do Commentary Track Stars off-topic and Commentary Track Star Babies. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, it is what it is. Go listen to him talk over there and then harass him about that stuff, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can harass me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. That's what I was forgetting. It uh, is a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun to harass you on Twitter. It truly is. Yeah, well, When I want to practice it. on my troll game, I go to at Mumbles3K, <laughs> and I, I bring out the long knives, and I get started. You're good at it. You're good at it, but I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. That's good. That's good. Thank you. Um, before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor, who helps us bring commentary trek stars and all of our other shows to you each week and our sponsor for this show is audible.com audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for what book do you have for us this week john oh well well this week we have a delightful book called uh, the colorado kid a hard case crime novel by stephen king it's narrated by jeffrey demunn and the premise is on an island off the coast of maine a man is found dead there's no identification on the body. Only the dogged work of a pair of local newspapermen and a graduate student in forensics turns up any clues. But that's just the beginning of this mystery. Because the more they learn about the man and the baffling circumstances of his death, the less they understand. Was it an impossible crime? Or something stranger still? And there's a tie-in, actually, uh, to um, Michael Piller in that his son... Uh, Sean is a producer on the show on Sci-Fi called Haven, which is based on this, correct? Yeah, yeah. If that description sounds somewhat familiar, it's because Haven is based on on this book and another another Stephen King adaptation, which is executive produced by Sean Piller. And uh, yeah, so so go ahead and 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 check out the Colorado Kid because you can get it for free uh, on mm-hmm. Audible since you listen to Trek FM, so why not, right? Yeah, yeah I've, what's better than a free audiobook? It really makes the, the commute go by quick, I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait. Force Friday, Aftermath, <laughs> I'm totally getting that off of Audible. It's going to be the best, right? Well, I imagine that's going to be the quickest way to read it and yeah. avoid all of the spoilers that will be coming out about it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I know, I, I, right? Although maybe, everybody, maybe everybody's going to be uh, distracted by the global unboxing event for, for the toys. Which they're actually doing one happen. of those, uh, one of the places where they're doing that is going to be at the Disney store downtown here in Chicago. No kidding. I'm no like, kidding. I could totally go to that, but I'm yeah, not going to. you gonna. should. No. You should go see somebody else open up a box of a toy. <laughs> So that you can see what the toy looks like when it's outside the box. Because why have the suspense of buying the toy? <laughs> but why? I, 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 I am. I, I think I am. Are you going to go to Force Friday? Are you going to go to a midnight opening or anything? Um, Mike, I, I have two kids with a third on the way. What do you think? <laughs> do you think I'm going to go to a midnight opening of toys? Kids like toys? Kids love toys. Maybe they they'll want to come do. with. My, my, I don't. Yes, my children... Do you remember Gremlins? What happens to small creatures when you keep them up till midnight? I've never that. seen Gremlins. Oh, God. I sw- <laughs> I'm done. I'm out. I've How many seen, movies? I've How seen many s- movies, Mike? Gremlins. <laughs> Come on. I've, I've seen Small Soldiers. I don't... That's not... I don't care. Everyone says, well, this small is basically soldiers. Gremlins 3. And I'm like, well, I, I like Small Soldiers. Uh, well, Gremlins 2 sucked, so I'm not going to go for anything that's Gremlins 3. Oh, you haven't seen Gremlins. I can't well, it's, it's I gotten to a point now where it plays so frequently on the big screen that I feel like if I'm going to watch it, it's going to have to be on the big screen. And it is Keep playing in Chicago excuses. like next month. So I'm, I'll try. I'll try. I, yeah, I will be sorely disappointed if you don't go. Okay. All right. I'll tell you what. If you go to Gremlins, yeah. I promise you that I will continue to make fun of uh, Force Friday. Cool. Cool. I think See I'm going to go. Trade? I'm gonna go. To, I'm gonna go to the midnight release, even though I'm like, I don't, I don't think I'm gonna buy. I mean, like, I'm more interested in what Disney Store is gonna have than like Toys R Us because Disney Store has like cute stuffed animals and stuff. You know? Yeah. Might be able to yeah. get like a like a Jawa or something. 
You know, See, I, okay. Look, I, I know that this is all like sort of like going off, uh, you know, ch- chasing down the rabbit hole and everything. But who cares? Like, I, yeah, I know, right? But <laughs> it's just to me, it's just like the whole Black Friday nonsense after uh, Thanksgiving, where it's like I, I've never been in that much of a need to buy something that quickly. Like, yeah, see, this is you know, different to me because this is just like people. It's not like people who are like, I need to get the best deal on the thing. This is like a bunch of Star Wars fans who are like, oh, my God, it's Star Wars. You know what I mean? But we live in the Internet age where truly I feel that the greatest aspect of it is that I can let somebody else do that <laughs> and stay up late and then I can wake up and read the article about it. OK, fair enough. I think I'm going to go. I think I'm going to go to the same store that I went to for the midnight release of episode one just because I'm nostalgic like that. I skipped it then, too. I think I might get like a stormtrooper or something, and that's it. And you know what? I will get a good night's rest, and I will be well rested and happy. And then I will go into the store the next day and buy a stormtrooper, and yeah, we can yeah, compare be... the stormtroopers <laughs> well, I, and I see mean, which one's different. I, I stay up till like two or three o'clock in the morning anyway, so it's not like it's you know. I mean, if I were to wake up at 10 a.m., that would be much more of a, you know, stress on, <laughs> on my on my psyche than just, I'm like, well, I was going to go to Jewel anyway to get some Pib Zero, and it's right across the parking lot, so I might as well go to the, you know, They Toys make R Us. Pib Zero? Oh, hell yeah, they make Pib Zero. It's the nectar of the gods. I'm on board with that. And it wow. actually, it actually tastes more like real Mr. Pib than Pib Extra does. So when it comes to Pib... Less is more. Zero instead of extra. This episode of Commentary Trek Stars brought to you by Mr. Pib. Oh, I'll have you know that every episode of Commentary Trek Stars is brought to you by Mr. Pib, because if I didn't have that stuff, I wouldn't be able to function. So, <laughs> anyway. Um, so, yeah. Uh, did we say that uh, as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice? I don't think we did. We did now. We do um, now. Uh, but uh, yeah, along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is, just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and the network. All right. Well, that was, that was, that was an awesome episode. Uh, learned yeah. a lot. Uh, got to talk to one of the writers of one of the best episodes of star trek in history um yes <laughs> and no, and I, I, yeah which is which is awesome out of how many hours of star trek it, it, like 700 yesterday's enterprise like that but it's yesterday's enterprise is always top of mind yeah it's everybody be like always top 10 or so at least right easy I mean, easy so yeah 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 so yeah, yeah. Thanks again to to Eric, and um, yeah, that's that's the end of of part three in our series on on Michael Pillar. And next week we will be back to take a look at the final uh, television show which he created, Wildfire. <laughs>